Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you, JJ, for that introduction. And I also want to thank all my listeners from all around the world. We're now in over 60 countries. I appreciate each of you, both listeners and guests. I have had awesome guests, and I've had awesome listeners who have written great reviews and comments and emails that they are so thrilled hearing the stories of hope because it doesn't matter where we are in this world. There is a message out there that needs to be shared, and that is, I've been there. I know what you've gone through. I've come on the other side. I can help you. And that's the message that my guests give. Coming from all different walks of life, Warren's story is not one that you hear every day. It's going to be an intriguing interview. He's going to share something that happened to him that very few of us might be able to relate to, but we will really tweak our interest. And that is that Warren was a former soldier, university teacher, a hostage survivor. He's also a speaker and a songwriter. Warren is the longest-held Australian captive outside war for more than 15 months. That's even hard to wrap my head around. It's very difficult to comprehend how someone could be held captive that long and survive under extreme circumstances. He was hidden and starved in the island jungles, with the constant threat over him of of being beheaded, not knowing if he was going to make it the next day. Now, the terrorists were demanding their original ransom of two million U.S. dollars. Both the Philippine and the Australian governments had strict policies refusing to pay ransoms. And so you can understand the political ramifications around this story. Now, Warren's life was hanging in the balance. And this is what we want to talk about today. How he survived, what happened afterwards, how his life has changed, and Warren's life was hanging in the balance. Welcome, Warren. Welcome, Carol. Thanks for that introduction. Well, I'm just scratching the surface. I, I read your, your bios today and... We could, I could probably talk for about an hour about you. Or let's start with what your life was like before the abduction. What were you doing? Where were you living, etc.? What was your life like? 
Okay, well, we're going back firstly now to 2011. I was kidnapped on December 5, 2011. But about six months beforehand, I had moved to the Philippines uh, after uh, living and teaching in China at the universities in the mainland for about 10 years. Uh, at that time, I was in my early 50s, so I decided it was time to make another five-year plan. Uh, certainly, when we get past 50, you can't start <laughs> counting in too many multiples of uh, 5, 10, or 20. Uh, and with the way the world changes and has changed, uh, five years looked far enough ahead for me. Uh, the ultimate plan was to set myself up between three countries, China, Australia, and the Philippines, the Philippines being about halfway geographically. Right? So I, uh, I had some uh, money, some capital behind me, but probably not enough to really uh, do too much with anywhere else. So I decided that I could... Uh, uh, you know, if I got married locally, I, I was, you know, I'd well and truly divorced. Uh, my children had all grown. I thought that if I got married locally, preferably someone in a provincial region, uh, I could build a house, satisfy that. Then, if need be, I had enough capital to really cover myself for about five years. So, if need be, once the building project was over, I could then maybe fly into China for a semester. You know, teach, then, you know, sort all that out, then uh -huh. ultimately set things up in Australia too, uh, as develop the English skills, the practice skills. So I thought maybe I could do something like that in Australia too over time. So prior to going there, my life had been as a, an expatriate in in China. I had the, uh, the opportunity to travel to and, and live in about 50 different countries over that span of time. You were living the good life. That'd be it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a good life. Uh, a major military base next door to a high school. My neighbours were all public servants, civil servants, police, soldiers, nurses, what have you. Uh, it Things seemed okay. I engaged a couple of private workers once we, the main house was finished. Uh, I could just sort of create extent. I was doing some of the so it, it was nice. On the day that I was actually kidnapped, I had a motorcycle. I rode into the town to get something or other. When I rode back, I rode back and I, you know, sort of uh, breathed in some air. This is freedom. It was just getting on dark, sun up six o'clock in the morning. The two men, I, I got back to the house, two men working there. I saw what they'd done. Uh, I was very pleased and, th and uh, I was uh, probably really at a peak of uh, happiness. A pleasure with them, and I can see a big grin on my face. We'll get this finished in two weeks. Uh, I sort of focused on what I'd been doing, and I didn't realise until around about that time something I overlooked is while I was consumed uh, with this passion of wanting to get this creative task I'd set out myself to do, is there was no internet connection out there. That was a mistake I made, and step outside and analyse what's going on at least see it from an outside point of view. Sure, 6 p.m., uh, just after sunset, uh, I was around the side of the house. I had only a pair of shorts on, no shoes, no shirt or anything. There was a, a brick or concrete wall I built on the boundary as a fence, and maybe one metre as a distance between that and the house, concrete wall. I'm standing there. Then I heard this crashing sound. I wasn't sure what was going on. Uh, within uh, one or two minutes, I was on a slightly elevated level. 
two men with one or two arms distances in front of me pointing military weapons at me. What went through your head at that moment? Probably just shock or surprise. Yeah, probably more surprise. I sort of looked blankly and uh, I, I sort of looked up and uh, as I'd done various training in the past, I, I knew that you know whenever anyone points a gun at you, the thing is just do whatever the man with the gun says. Right. Yeah. Uh, just sort of keep quiet, uh, observe. But then I looked at this guy. Once we made eye contact, the next thing was it went, and I was standing slightly side on, and a bullet went straight through my hand. I was lucky, you know, that uh, with the hand because he he could not have been that good a shot. <laughs> this guy, you know, uh. it, on my right hand, if you look at your thumb and your, your index finger and stretch that, the webbing in between, yes, a bullet went through uh, about the halfway between, then out through the top of my hand. That was a bit more of a shock, and it was painful, because it felt like the two bones had gone between bones and sort of pushed mm-hmm. them apart. I swore at him, and just, you just shot my hand. Uh, immediately, because I growled at him and was angry, he, he sort of, I saw he startled, then he next said, said, police, police. I, uh, they had some sort of military uh, clothing on, and when I looked at the rifle butt, uh, it, there was a sticker that said police, but there was also an Islamic sticker. That confused me. Because he said police, that was their, their intention to uh, you know, pretend to be police. Because he had said that, the next thing as soon as he said it was he pulled out a pair of handcuffs and put them over to me to put them on. So that's a normal practice throughout the world. The police, you know, you're supposed to submit to them, you know, not resist arrest. So I put my hand out. So he planted it on tight on one hand, then on the other. Uh, then he said we are going to teach you a lesson. You're coming with us. I said, well, I'll get my stuff first. He said, no, no. Then behind me, he uh, grabbed me by the back of the shorts and wedged me. Then then I got uh, sort of dragged or marched across this, these fields these uh, and rice fields, maybe for 20 minutes or so, until we eventually got down uh, to a river. Then I saw two boats, and I realized then, I'm being kidnapped because I thought they were going to take me to some hut. I, I thought myself first when he said, we're going to teach you a lesson. I thought, I don't recall upsetting any of the local police lately. It's, uh, you know, I'd, uh, like I said, I'd made sure all the time to avoid any forms. Of, I always had all my paperwork with me uh, and followed everything to the letter. We're in the boat. We get out to, the, uh, to sea. I'm told to keep my head down. So I'm handcuffed. Uh, after about one hour at sea, the fellow in front of me, because there was four guys in the boat at this time, the fellow that was in front of me, he, he put his arm up in the air and made, and made a gesture, a clenched fist, like a black power. They love, they love movies there. So I looked at him and I thought, you jerk. Because <laughs> yeah. I think he put his sunglasses on as well. <laughs> and it's moonlight. No sooner had he done that than the next thing, the motors <laughs> said the boat was on fire. Oh. Uh, and it became sort of a comedy of errors from there on. Uh, the next morning, uh, we're still in a boat on the island. By the time we got to any island, the, these men were using their cell phones. I thought, I think they were also trying to use them as a GPS signal to find out where they were going. But this was another big problem. Because they were outlaws and in very much uh, outlaw territory, most of the time, there were no cell phone signals, so no communication. It's very difficult to uh, negotiate uh, a hostage release or anything or a ransom demand if you can't 
can't make contact with anyone. Right? Now, to zoom forward, a, a few days later, we're off in some very remote place down towards uh, East Malaysia uh, in the uh, generally, what well, you could say, the Pacific region. And um, I'd lost consciousness, a lot of blood, uh, close to death. Why were they beating you? Or I, From my hand wound, for one thing, okay. I'd lost a lot. When I went into the ocean, that served a good purpose because it cleaned the wound out. It was nice and warm, beautiful night otherwise, you know. Probably one of the best nights of all because of lovely blue moon, a lovely full clear moon. Could see everything. The water was warm. The wound there. Being handcuffed at that stage had the advantage of acting like a tourniquet uh, on my, my hand. So mm. that helps. So oh. what was going through your mind at this point? You realized you're kidnapped. Were you trying to figure out why, or were you just in okay, fear? Okay, well, the morning, the morning after. We, we, uh, we're hiding in these mangroves. I'm actually in the water, uh, in the mangroves. They, everyone's got heavy weaponry. We're in hiding. And one fellow, uh, the leader uh, of the kidnapping gang, he said to me, um, he wanted a contact number for my, he said, your daddy. And I said, oh, no, daddy. Daddy dead. And the next thing he, uh, he said, your mommy. Said, no, mommy, she's dead as well. I said, wife. I go, no, wife. And then he actually said, well, whatever they want, he said, well, I forget the amount he initially said to me, uh, and I said, he might have said one million pesos, and I said, I, I don't, whatever the amount he said, I said, I, I don't have that, you know, I, I don't know anyone that does have, and he said, oh, you will have to be punished, and in very whispered tones, because there were military patrols nearby too in this area, so in, in various situations that I was in, uh, we were we were fully tactical. Uh, and sort of hiding from the military as well. Now, because I had a you know, a rifle pointed straight at me, they had told me right at the beginning, you, know, you run, you make a noise, we will kill you. Do as, Always do as the man with the gun says. You don't try to push your luck in those instances because they need to survive as well, don't they? And uh, they, they don't, uh, their adrenaline is pumping. So this fellow, when when I said, well, when he said, you, you, you have to be punished, I go, what does that mean? Are you going to shoot me or cut my throat, and then he used a gesture of his finger slicing across his neck. So that was, when we talk fear, I, I, I'd heard an acronym years ago for fear. It's called false evidence appearing real. This fear is really something more, fear is more something of the mind. Beyond fear was this sense of terrorism. You know, uh, it's more than panic. I, I'd experienced panic from, you know, uh, from various let's say, adventurous things I've done in the past, or, you know, gung-ho. No, it's just uh, stunned because I, I didn't want me to speak. I was getting very rough treatment. Uh, we went by night. Uh, the next night, what could have been 10 hours or so by boat in rough season, I was laying on the ground and my head kept hitting the floor. So, Did you have uh, any idea where you were? You know, I guessed. On the first, uh, on the second evening, they, they had said they were going to return me to, to where I come. We got back to that river or that area, but then what I heard was the, the, the men in the villages, they come out and, and what I could understand a little bit was that um, they, it was too much of a risk. They did not want, want to be holding me. You know? So they, were, they just rejected me. Yeah, so I was taken off to sea and I knew I was just going, I was heading way out to sea. <laughs> and when we eventually got to the place, there was somebody who was talking in English and everything. One guy, a spokesman, he said to me, 
uh, how much money do you have? Uh, and they also ask me, where are you from? I suppose uh, I'm uh, very much Australian in my way of thinking and so on and manner, so it's rather laconic and dry humour. When, when I got asked questions like, you know, uh, you know, where are you from? I go, oh, haven't you done your homework at all? You know? um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, then he'd say something else. And remember, too, I'd also lived uh, abroad in very vastly unique cultures. You know, you can be fairly blunt in what you say. Cuts out all the uh, unnecessary, the redundant words. And you just ask bluntly, because English was definitely not their first language. And he also said, look, I said, oh, I could probably come up with Immediately, I could probably come up with about you know, one million pesos, which was around about twenty thousand. I said, "Any money I've got, you know, I had it transferred in. Uh-huh. I've already spent it." I go, "That's what we do. We don't keep bags of money, one million dollars or a million pesos in a sack at home." Then, when I said, "Look, I could come up with about a million pesos," I said, "And the same with the guys." I said, "Look, I'll do a deal with him. Drop me back. You can have the house, the titles, right? Have whatever I've got at the house." Yeah, take the motorcycle, all that. Just give me an hour to get away, right? And then I'll forget your faces. Uh, and they sort of did that guy. So when I said one million pesos, which would have been around about twenty thousand uh, dollars, the guy then said to me, "We'll ask for one million dollars." I said, "No, no, 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 pesos, not dollars." He said, "No, nah, one million dollars. You'd be better off asking for Australian dollars because the Australian dollars are worth more." That one went straight over his head. So I think I got kidnapped the Monday evening. On about the Thursday night, there were four guards around me. One uh, could speak a a small bit of English. He had produced a cell phone, and they were trying to link me up or patch patch me. Because on the day before, when when earlier that day, he'd asked me, and I'm lapsing in and out of consciousness. He's saying, uh, Mommy's name, Daddy's name, all that. I said, No, and I'm sort of out of consciousness. Then this guy said, look, brother, brother, please tell us, who can we contact? Then he said, do you have mother, father, all that sort of thing? Then he said, brother, sister. I go, sister, I have a sister. Right? Now, I wasn't trying to be evasive because I'm you know, just coming out of consciousness. And I thought, oh, sister. Then he said, what's her number? I go, I don't know. It's in my cell phone. And you idiots told me not to bring it. <laughs> then he came back you know, a bit later and asked me again because I sort of, phase out of consciousness, it came back again. Brother, brother, you must tell us, otherwise we cannot guarantee your your security after today. And he looked really concerned, this guy, because I don't think he really wanted the prospect of having to cut my head off. And I said, and it dawned him, I said, Australian Embassy. And I said, look, six months ago, I had to go to the embassy in Manila and get a certificate for uh, it's called the Australians call it a no impediment to marriage certificate. I, said, I left my contact details there. And he said, "What is the phone number of the embassy?" And I swore at him, told him more to go. I go, "I'll do some work for yourself." <laughs> yeah, how would I know? You are being so, very brave. <laughs> oh well, look, what have I got to lose? Exactly, that's what I was thinking. Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, eight p.m., three nights in succession. We're waiting for to connect. This phone call is getting patched through all different networks, right? And it's supposed to be contact, putting me in contact with either with the Australian Embassy or my sister back in Australia. Uh, I found it later. What it actually was was to they call it a proof of life question. Okay, right. But on these three evenings, 
just when they're trying to do it, there's no cell phone signals. So after it, by the Monday morning, I said, look, you guys really don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And come on, come in. Because with the guards, they were just really just local peasants, part of the operations. Okay. That was their cottage industry. Uh, so I could say things to them and also pass messages and say, why don't you explain to your leader or the spokesman? And I do this over a period of time later. I say to him, and I'd be careful who I'd say things to and what person, right? But I'd also say to him later on, you better explain this to your leader, right? That when you do any training courses, right? A couple of things. Don't shoot people through the hand if you later want them to sign a check. Does that happen? <laughs> a bank slip? Another one is, yeah. Get the person to bring their cell phone because then you can take the card out of it, the memory, and you've got all the contact details. Now, there's no point asking otherwise, you know, because it's the same like your email addresses, isn't it? You know, uh, you'd have more chance. But I would also say to them over the, a period of time that uh, I pass this message through, that if, you know, if anyone has any plans of doing me any bodily harm, Right? I will refuse to make any any movies, make any statements for you. And if you put me in front of the camera or something like that, all I'll say is, let him kill me. Because for the first three months, and this is zooming forward now, Carol, for the first three months, uh, my anxiety was very heightened <laughs> and my paranoia. Whenever there'd be a my large goodness. number of people moving in and you know, looking around thinking, you know, Am I going to be, yeah, are they going to cut my head off? But the really terrifying thing is when first imagining this, when they said about cutting my head out, when, when I looked over, I could see a hatchet, what looked like a hatchet, and it was blunt. That was the only tool available. It wasn't going to be anything glorious or, you know, like a, you know, a samurai or one swift blow over the back of the head, right? This was going to be similar to having a head cut such as you would do with a chicken. Yes. And what happens when it doesn't go off completely? Yes. Right? I thought, this, this is not a pleasant thought. Uh, but fortunately, I had thought at that time, I had really minimal connections in the world, um, family responsibilities and that. I thought, that's one advantage for me because nobody else can really be hurt. Yeah. Uh, but I did, uh, and I also thought too, uh, in this case, that I would have always considered beforehand whose life, you know, would really be more valuable or productive, a younger person or an older person in such a situation. And it realised me, now I can understand an older person would value their life more because their time is more limited, isn't it? The learning curves and all that. Because I, I feel myself that it wasn't really until about the age of 50 that maturity really kicked in with myself. And, you know, and I've been very worldly. I right? had various uh, experiences. But after about 50, I could see, certainly from an emotional point of view, if I had some feeling, I could... Uh, I could be more 
withdrawn or detached and just observe and think to myself, oh, that upsets me. No, I'm happy about that. That sort of thing without really getting dragged into the emotion. So during this time, how did you stay sane? Like the days, what were your days like? Well, I okay. Mean- sure. Well, the days were just long and empty. The first month, uh, I was still handcuffed. Uh, although the, the guard did, did just release it off one hand and it's on the other. But for about the first four weeks, my daily routine, I'd been supplied with some betadine you know, to pour on the wound in the hand. I could see through my hand. So I focused completely on that, just uh, mending my hand, the wound. So during the daytime, I'd, I'd keep it open and uh, moist, the wound. But then in the evening, I would uh, use the the cardboard packet from a mosquito coil, put that over it, uh, I think it's a cover or something. Then there was an empty plastic bag that bread had been in. I, I made a glove over that, out of that and covered it up. The mosquitoes were horrendous. And after I was released, the military doctor said to me that it was, uh, it's amazing I didn't get uh, dengue or malaria. But... Uh, were you outside all the time or did you have some, you know, where did they keep uh, you? Well, yeah, good question. I was, for, with the exception of <clears throat> basically 10 weeks, and uh, there was the final month too, but for most of the 15 months, 472 days, I was uh, in Mangrove uh, Island jungles, uh, so the swamps, and in a a hammock that was stretched just above the water, the tidal water to come up, and there was a tarpaulin spread out at the top uh, as a as a shelter. Then I was camouflaged underneath so planes couldn't see me. But uh, I didn't. I uh, I basically wasn't allowed to move anywhere. And how many uh, guards were there? The at the beginning there were a lot. Uh, and it usually be about seven. One time we went up to about 20. And we had about 100 at one stage. We went up into a battle zone for 10 weeks. Uh, but then by the end, it was really only about one or two. Because the guards, I, I was able to observe their behaviours. And uh, they would follow patterns. Were you, you planning know, escape at this point? Like making these observations and realizing that you're probably a lot smarter than they were. Were you planning how you were going to get out of there or did you feel that was hopeless? I, even if I could have escaped, there was nowhere to go. Right. Because uh, there was, uh, I wouldn't be able to swim two or three hundred kilometers. For one thing. And everybody in the areas around there are controlled by the same group. Oh, uh, so that wasn't, uh, and option. they did ask. No, there was no option like that. You know, the, uh, again, uh, and right at the beginning with these uh, the different guards, uh, I had to explain to them too at times that uh, you know, uh, real life is not like Hollywood movies. You know, Liam Neeson, whoever others do hostage things, uh-huh. there's no helicopter that comes in within. You know, it takes longer than two hours. Uh, the, these are going to be record uh, long things. Uh, so, so it, 
it went on like that. But I realised early in the piece when one spokesman came in to see me, and they'd have to come overnight. When they would uh, arrive, the people came, had to come travel at night under the cover of night. But when they did, they usually shivering and say, oh, it's cold here. But I had decided for the first month that I would just, I'd keep quiet. Just anything that was given to me, I'd just be gracious, gracious and just say thank you, but not say anything more. But basically everything anyone said to me, I'd just say thank you. Right? If they handed me something. Uh, I, I lived on some uh, crackers for about the first month and tea. Uh, they did cook some rice, but I thought at that time, I won't eat any of the food they're, they're preparing because I didn't want that added problem of having any stomach problems. Right. That would be, yeah, I was concerned but about knew, that you know, as you were. Yeah, so, so look, uh, but then after the three-month bit and getting back to the thing, I think because this fear was consuming me, I had thought. That, the fear you know, of being killed? Yeah, not very much, uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, the terror of it because it's something that uh, uh, fear is something you can you can block out, you know, you just switch on the thing, you know, and I just think whenever anything I recognize fear, I just keep saying to myself, false evidence appearing real, false evidence appearing real. So and how I'm, did you stay sane? Like what did you focus on mentally? What, all right, it, well, I, again, I was very, very lucky, Carol, because I had lived uh, such a, you know, an active life and varied life. Not long before being kidnapped, I thought to myself, you know, I need a bit of time, you know, for everything I've been doing, especially in that last couple of years. Uh, I need a bit of time somewhere to, and maybe I have to do this in retirement and sort of sit back and just sort of rewind, go over what I've been doing. Because uh, a bit like a debrief, uh, you know, that uh, I'm going, going to make an assumption that, that, that you do it as well. You, you go somewhere, you do something, same like this interview, you know. What you'll do afterward, you'll listen to it, you'll consider, what did I do well, what did I do wrong? You know what I mean? Yes. You sort of go through that. So that's how I like to do things myself. That I've been trained in business and management as well in the past. It's sort of do a debrief, you know, go back, think about the places I've been, what I've done, you know, the, the, sort of the inch-by-inch inch blow of it, then uh, put it to rest, resolve it if you like. Then move on and think to myself, now, is anything, uh, you know, Anything I did, anyone I met, anything I was, you know, I was going to follow up on. Uh, I'd always had this idea throughout life. I wasn't going to wait till you know, my uh, dying seconds and my, if my life was going to flash before me, have regrets about something I didn't do, you know, or uh, left anything emotionally or, you know, or, or mentally unattended to. So I was able, if you like, to really just switch on uh, uh, a bit like a movie screen. And just review my life. And that kept you sane. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, yes. also, this was the end of 2011. We came into 2012. So what I did, I thought, I'll break this down. Because there were many things, uh, I thought, what I'll do is, as each day goes past, I will focus on whatever's happened on this day. You know, uh, here where I am, I think the date's the 14th of uh, April. The It is. Uh, I would think 14th of April. Okay, 14th of April. What happens? First thing is it's my brother-in-law's birthday. Yeah. Uh, whatever times I've seen him when it's his birthday. You know. Uh, anything else like that? You know what I mean? Then yes. consider any contact I have with him. 
it would get to a point at some times where I, you, know, you can push it too hard because then you're just getting drained. So you also have to learn to sort of back off it a bit. But Now, I did that for every year of 2012. Uh, eventually, after I got past uh, doing the days, what I'd also think, I'd think back into history as well, like what happened in this, this year, you know, of this date. Uh, I got to even to the extent of, uh, you know, remembering as many American presidents as I could. So in other mm-hmm. words, you were using past experience to keep your mind active. And at any point, or did you vacillate between being fearful that you would live another day or and maybe so hoping first, that you would live and that you would get out of there? Like, how did you, how did okay, you deal glad, with that? I'm, I'm, sure, I'm glad you came to that because probably the point is, and I know the theme uh, of, your, of your show, Carol, is hope. Yeah? I'm, I'm glad you, you, you know, we're back on that fear, false evidence appearing real. Hope, or at least false hope, was a challenge to me. My mind created or clung, created and also clung to false hope. So I thought I'd better come up with an acronym for hope. The one, hope is of the mind. Yeah, faith is of the mind. So not faith is of the mind, hope is of the will. What is the opposite? And a question for you, what would be the opposite of hope, tragic disappointment every time I build up hope. My acronym for hope is one possible eventuality. That's so, very good. Here's one, one possible, possible eventuality. eventuality. That's it. What I am doing is I am fluctuating between hope and faith. My mind is telling me something like, oh, here's one possible eventuality. Grab that one. Then building up my hopes and getting all excited about it. Then, remember, this is all internalizing me. I, right. I have no control over my outside environments you know, or the, what's happening. Another thing is, too, where we just talked about reviewing the past. There was no future. It's ended. There's no point thinking, I'll do this and all that. All you're doing, that's again, that's building up a hope. So I started to distrust Aware of what was going on behind the scenes as far as uh, the negotiations for the ransom? Um, were you privy to those conversations? Were they speaking in the English? Like what was going through your mind when you were hearing hearing this? And, and was it possibly creating more fear? Or did you realize that they were going to come up with a solution? There were rumors. Uh, I... I would always have someone assigned with my personal carer, one of the guards, usually someone who could speak some English. And because we'd spend a lot of time in close proximity, we, we, we... But there were a number of times that I was... We went through the whole motions of maybe getting released and so on, and just nothing happened. Really? Uh, um, yeah, I was lied to all the time you know i was trying to touch on that you just uh, these these captors they they told me you know you can't trust anyone right not even themselves <laughs> their own leaders yeah really were yeah. you you know how very often um those who are being held captive will actually begin to understand the cause of the captors were you experiencing any of that emotion 
it wasn't so much an emotion because quite surprisingly there was one fellow that was with me for about 10 weeks and when he'd have to walk me into a little area to me to uh, yeah, perform my ablutions or to, to wash or anything he would say something to me he'd say something say look the uh, the leader of Abu Sayyaf is and I'm surprised it sounded like a bit like a movie plot huh. then uh, I said to him later you know because we had to whisper to each other very softly I said uh, can you write it on a bit of paper you know, I'm a visual learner you know do it on a bit of paper and I'll rememorize this name he said there are 11 leaders oh my goodness I said well, okay just give me one at a time you know so I go away next time I see him I tell him that guy's name so I go, give me another one yeah, and I go around and repeat it to myself till I had the 11. And that's one of the first things when I was released was when the Filipino police, and by chance, I was, the, the American military base lent some helicopters to the Australians, and I was taken to an American military base, and it's one of the first things I said when someone interviewed me. I said, have you got a bit of paper? Hey. And they said, yeah, yeah, take these names down. And they said, well, that's amazing that you remember them. I go, well, I had plenty of time to practice them. <laughs> But also, you, their mind might have been playing some games with you too, because you were being being starved as well of nutrients. Oh yeah, when you do that, you know, uh, when you don't get the nutrients, when you don't have the oxygen, you know, and the vertigo sets in. Absolutely. I, I don't operate it well on, on confusion, you know. Um, but uh, just a very quick thing, uh, back just on hope. What I found, and this is a message I'd like to. Uh, to share. Uh, I would regard that I, it was different times I had false hope. The the way that I coped with that was to let go of that. Let go of the concept of hope. What I was letting go of, uh, another word, not only hope one po- here's one possible uh, eventuality, another is here's one possible expectation. Uh. Was to let go of expectation. You know, we create an ideal, don't we? You know, and once I let go of that, you were being free- realistic. Yeah, that was freedom. That was a, a personal mm-hmm. release for me, right? Because look, if I didn't expect anything, how can anyone harm me mentally or emotionally? You know, well, if you, you, had to, you, you had to do that just to survive. I certainly can understand that. Absolutely. And, and after I was released, the, uh, one of the psychologists said to me, you know, what I had actually done is work through the trauma during the period of captivity. Uh. The one other thing, now, this was what was really fascinating for me on a personal level, because I always looked at things, you know, but I, I thought I can use this as a, a chance for some personal growth, this experience, because I've got to push myself, you know, uh, to adapt. And... The thing that I considered was after I'd run out of everything that I could remember, uh. I thought I will create sort of what-if scenarios. What would have happened, for example, what would have happened if there was a, a, a girl I was going to marry, my first girlfriend, say in my teens, I was going to marry, right? What would have happened if I had a now, that took me a number of weeks to go through that because I also <laughs> also tempered that one with what had actually happened with my life. We would have had three children, what the names would have been. Right? So you Where found ways 
to stay sane. Yes. Also, too, in one case where if I had inherited a piece of post property, how I would have done the designs for this property to change it over as the family group. So I draw on the uh, on the ground. One fellow laughed at one time and said, oh, look, he's drawing pictures on the ground. And when someone came close, I go, that's not a picture. This this is architectural genius. Right. When I explained to him what I was doing, he said, that's amazing. Because right. I always like mathematics too. So every day I'd calculate, keep track of the day. And at the end of each day, any time I was confused, I think it was a process, focus. What and that's what it? kept you alive and, and yeah. kept your, yes. Now, back to the negotiations. How did mm. it get from whatever it was, a million pesos, to $2 million? Was that right oh, at the they, beginning? They just, jumped, they just jumped, hiked the price up. These people, I realize, right, most of them are not only illiterate, they're innumerate as well. Yeah. And did and they ask, they who just, were they asking that of? Did, did they finally connect well, with the embassy or? Well, there was contact through the embassy and indirectly through my sister. And as I found out later, the Australian government uh, were notified of my kidnapping within a couple of hours. Because when these uh, kidnappers, the gang, arrived in the the village of subdivision, they had told people that they were police and all of them staying inside the house. So someone had phoned. But the Australian government automatically put together a, a multi-agency task force, uh, including our equivalent of the CIA, uh, called Asia, uh, the federal police, the military, and the, uh, the embassy. Uh, so, but then they had to coordinate with the Philippine police and specifically uh, the anti-kidnapping group. So what they did is, with my Filipino wife which, yeah, we weren't living together, but she was in a village uh, not far away with a family. She was used as a front, you know, the poor local wife. But when uh, the when a camera was ever brought in to make proof-of-life videos, mm-hmm. uh, usually a newspaper would be brought too. So I'd hold it up. Right, with the date. The date. But when they'd go, somebody would grab it and go, no, nah, I'm keeping that, you right? And I didn't have glass, but I'd squint my eyes. And then I'd got to read every word of the newspaper. And that sort of, sometimes I, I got to understand their politics well <laughs> in that country you know, uh, and every, everything going on. But I'd read things like that. But after the seven-week mark, Carol, this is quite fascinating. A, a spokesman came into me and he said, uh, to this remote island, he said, uh, they usually call me brother. Uh, I'd much rather that someone call me brother than call me friend, you know. Uh, and they say, brother, we have a problem. You know, the PNP, the Filipino police, do not believe you are alive. They want proof. <laughs> and when he said to them, I go, you really do have a problem, don't you? <laughs> you know? I said, How much can you get for a dead man? <laughs> That's right. Uh, so that gave me a sense of confidence. And yes, absolutely. In about the first speech, they've written it out for me. And they said, look, my wife won't pay my anything, you know, not even for food or lodging and medicines. I thought, you guys haven't done that. You have, you guys have no business now. You've got all these expenses and blown up motors and boats and people, and you're running at a loss. They need me. Otherwise, the so, more time it goes by, you're fools. 
absolute fools. And at different times, I'd say, I get to a point of frustration, I'd say, just go ahead and kill me. I want to die. Just go ahead and do it. Were you there for the um, the money exchange, or how did that how did that no, that no well that was always going to be the mystery, Carol. That was something I could not imagine, right? And I had to just accept that if there was going to be a release, if we ever got to that, then it would be sudden, and uh, you know uh, I wouldn't know when it would happen. Mm-hmm. But what? Uh, how it eventually happened is that uh, the Australian government, yeah, they worked in closely with my sister and so on. Internationally, uh, it's prohibited to pay ransom because that's funding terrorism. But locally, they don't call it ransom. It's called board and lodging. That sanitizes it. So look, the, the amount asked was $2 million US dollars, but these kidnappers, they had no communication between their various levels and everybody was trying to uh, you know, get a piece of the pie. So they'd also try to do uh, crowdfunding you know, or sourcing. And if they thought they were getting, they were going to get some payment, they'd come back thinking they could get it from the Australian government, you know, my sister, uh, the media, from me. They think they were going to get six times it you know, over. Uh, so what eventually happened is that my I had some money in the Bank of Australia, but between my brother, sister, and I, we came up with around about $100,000, which was represented uh, about 5% of the original claim. Through my former wife, Filipino wife, her and her cousin, they uh, they ended up delivering the money in Filipino pesos. My sister took it over, and then it was converted. Uh, a local governor was involved with negotiations. It's apparently what they do, but it's a real cottage industry. What were your emotions then at that point? Like, were you getting ecstatic, thinking that you were going to get home again? Uh, I dispensed with hope. I'd been dis- totally disappointed in the past. I expected nothing. Okay. Uh, when it came about, what I did do is, uh, in the early days, uh, I tried prayer. I invoked everybody's name I could. It wasn't really any response. And one time I was very, very desperate, running for food. Then I remembered uh, uh, an old grandmother I had. She was born in the 1890s. And my thought came to mind was how I used to go to her place, open the side door, and she had an apron and overfeed me. I imagined myself there one day, sat at the table, and all of a sudden a guard came around and produced food out of nowhere. Uh, a rather scrumptious meal. And I just thought, thanks, Grandma. Well, mm-hmm. Now, some other time, quite uh, a long time later, you know, nine months, maybe longer, a, a year later, I was in a very desperate situation. Uh, I hadn't had food for you know, a number of days. I was getting very weak, and I had water. You know. But um, then I thought, I'll test this a bit further. I'll be very specific as to what I asked for. It was for a can of sardines, a particular brand and a particular flavour. <laughs> so I'll test this Siri. Is this really working? It worked. Amazing. Yeah. Now, so what I thought myself, you know, when I you know, was ever going to be released, if that was to happen, 
is someone might say to me, you know, uh, about a belief in, uh, but on this line, the time of getting released, I was in a boat, a little tidal water, small boat, as a guard. All I thought all the time was, I just thought there's a reinforcement or an affirmation. I kept saying, stay with me, Grandma, stay with me, you know, and, you know, uh, and I suppose you know, it was any fear, any feeling, even excitement or whatever, I said, stay with me, stay with me, right, uh, see me through right to the end. Right. And it worked. So you uh, went, did you go back the same way that you had come? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Most places we'd been to, it, uh, whenever new people would arrive, and I, I had encountered anywhere up to about 100 of these uh, terrorists, hmm. it was all like a homecoming uh, and hugging <laughs> everyone whenever I see them. You know, just, you, know, you get to see each other in extreme conditions. You had to yes. survive. Yes, exactly. Even, even when they did a, a, a ransom video. They come in with weapons and everything and banners and some guy saying to me, oh, look, don't worry. And they said, here, we're going to tie your hands. Go, You're not putting handcuffs on me. No, I refuse. No handcuffs. No. And so, oh, is it okay if we put some rope on you? And they loaded it over the top of my hands. Oh, and my goodness. Just filming, <laughs> appearances. After they did the filming, I said, oh, look, we have to adjust this. It doesn't look real. Yeah. But uh, after they did the first filming uh, of it, the ransom thing, and the guy's reading out this uh, the thing is screed. Uh, and at the end, he finished. Then when he finished, uh, he stopped in like a, no, 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 no. You've made a mistake. You know, I, I was not kidnapped in 2012. Yeah, this is 2013 now. It's only one year. I was 2011. No, who's going to believe you? Yeah, I've only, you know. Really? So he went through it again. And in that actual one, and that was a crucial video, that one. But in that video, then at the end, what the guy says to at the end, after he finishes reading out his thing, he says, uh, is that right? And the embassy, the federal police, the military, they picked up on that. They go, was he checking with you? <laughs> and he done it. I go, oh, they were idiots. I even had to tell the guy how to use the camera. Right. And I got so used to it. Only about four of these proof of life videos uh, ever surfaced, but there was about 10 of them. Really? And I, I was just, I was pissed. I was so what, what happened after the release? Like, were you very ill? Right. What did you have to go through as far as um, your recovery time, your rehabilitation, um, your mind, your health? I suppose the first thing was once I was let out of a boat and I had to climb up a wharf embankment, right, and got on a road, uh, I had held onto a pair of rubber thongs, flip-flops for the feet, right, slippers. And uh, when I went to put them on a sealed road, I couldn't get my feet in them. You know, it was as though I had no sea legs. Mm. And I was all wobbly. Right? Uh, but look, and anyway, uh, then I, 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 all I've been told is once you get to land, walk along and say, please help me. So I walked along slightly, and I go, please help me, please help me. No one answered. Then there was this rabid-looking dog appeared. I thought, oh, great, I'm going to have to fight a dog. <laughs> 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 yeah, this is great. Yeah, I'm going to have to try to rip its arms apart or something, right? Because by this stage, you could say I was uh, somewhat feral myself because I yes. got the stage of the different men I'd do. And I, I had some of these guards fearful of me because I'd tell them, I want to kill you. Right? 
and sometimes when they see me coming at them with you know, some stick or something else like that, or they'd anger me, right? They sort of you know, backpedal quickly. You know, then explain that where you've just lost all this money. Right? You know, you don't get paid. But uh, anyway, I walked up a, I don't know, maybe 500 metres, and there was a large gates, and it was a port authority, a wharf. And the, I saw the name at the top, and it said Pagadian, and I thought I was being dropped off somewhere else. And this guard, it's about half after midnight. This is a good story, this part. He, he said to me, oh, can I help you? And I said, this is Pagadian. And he said, I, are you a tourist? I go, oh, no, no, I'm a kidnapped hostage. I've just been released. Are you sure? Yeah, I go, hey, what time is it? Is it after midnight? Is it, it's 12 30. I said, great. It's my dead mother's birthday. Wow. Because I was hoping, well, you know, while I'm in the boat, I'm thinking, take me all the way, Grandma. You know? She wasn't thinking, I'm like, take me all the way. But I also thought, I was conscious of the day of it. This would, be, this would be great if I could coincide to be my mother's birthday. Yeah. So uh, I was happy. I made it into past midnight. Look, they uh, took me to a little office, called the local police. They came. Uh, I got taken to the police station. Uh, and the, the officer in charge said, we, we have been expecting you, but we didn't know when or where hmm. you would be arriving. So they put me onto a phone call, the, uh, the deputy ambassador, Australian ambassador. He said, look, we're over at a, uh, another city uh, at the, the American military base. The Americans have been great yeah, helping us, and they're going to lend us a couple of helicopters, and we'll be over at 5 o'clock in the morning, and, and, and we'll pick you up and bring you back to the American military base. Right? So uh, the, the choppers arrived. Uh, then I was flown to the American military base, examined. But uh, my condition, well... Um, I was very much institutionalised. I was diagnosed with uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, of course. At, at 55 kilograms, I looked like I'd you know, just been released as a Japanese prisoner of war. Mm. And because I'd had really no mental stimulation and no, in, uh, no independent thinking. So I, and my feet, uh, apart from having a, you know, a wounded hand, uh, that had healed, but I had a big... It was almost two years later before I had my... Uh, hand operated on the finger amputated. Really? But uh, with my feet, uh, they were basically the dead nerve endings, neuropathy it's called. Yes. Uh, That that was up to the shins, so I could barely walk. My ribs were poking through my, rib cage was poking through my skin. Uh, I had no strength whatsoever. My vision was, uh, had diminished totally and my hearing. Uh, And anyone would say something to me like, you know, Questions they would ask me. Remember, I've I've had uh, you know, 472 days to think about things. Yes, that's and, right. So someone someone to ask me something, right? And uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I needed to readjust. Uh, well, I was in the military base for a few days. Um, then once I was well enough, then flown up to Manila. My brother and sister had flown in from Australia to meet me, and it took me about a week because there were a lot of uh, interviews, but also they were allowing enough time for me to be physically and psychologically healthy enough for a flight back to Australia. Uh-huh. So I decided to come back to Australia. There wasn't much else I could do, right? Uh, but when I got back, I stayed with my brother for a, a few months and I moved into somewhere on my own. But uh, the future had just been cancelled on me. And I would say this to my guards. At different times, they said to me, what will you do 
when you're released, I go, it really depends on whose custody I go into. Because I will follow the recommendations, I'll probably be the embassy. Uh, in that way, the Australian government was very good right, in looking after me. Uh, but of course, once I got back to Australia, I was advised that once I got back into the country, uh, there would be no, the Department of Foreign Affairs is external. Uh, so a bit like the State Department from the US. Right? Yes. But uh, they really don't have any jurisdiction within the country domestically. So I'd basically be dropped back into the uh, everyday uh, civilian life and have to go into queues like everyone else will wait for anything for government assistance. Were they comp were you compensated at all for anything or no. Um, there was a compensation scheme introduced in July 2013. There, there had been a media blackout on this, but that was just not to feed the uh, terrorists any information. But uh, the incumbent prime minister at that time made my, my kidnapping made uh, world news. It still does because there's a lot of uh, things still going on with it and other events. It was a forerunner, if you like, because this was just before all those Al Qaeda beheadings too. Yes, I was thinking that as you were talking. Yeah, and there's yes. big things happening now yes. around the world. But no. Look, no, a compensation scheme was introduced by our federal government. Like like the states, we have you know, state government and federal government. Mm -hmm. But um, in each state normally, there is what's called criminal injuries compensation awarded by the states. Right? But because this was international, the federal government had introduced this uh, Australian Victims of Terrorism Overseas payment. Now, the amount that is uh, that would be available from it is just the amount I need to pay out my brother and sister. Because the first question, when I saw my brother and sister, uh, once we arrived in uh, Manila, I said, look, how much do I owe you? And uh, they both said, oh, no, it doesn't matter. I said, no, no, tell me up front. I need, I need a number. How much do I owe you? Right, and, and straight away I felt it my obligation, which I was good enough to help out. Uh -huh. uh, and I said, no, I feel it's my obligation. I, I, I want to know, yeah, and I'll, I will aim towards being able to do what I can about paying you back that. But that's just my, yeah, uh, uh, it's just the way we've been raised. Uh -huh. um, so, but the problem is with this compensation uh, is that. To be eligible to make an application, the incident, the act of terrorism has to be officially declared by the incumbent prime minister. Uh. So I've jumped through the hoops and done that, and we've had three prime ministers over the last three, actually four over the last three years. We turn them around for the prison. And there's another election coming up. But um, I seem to keep getting overlooked. The... To actually declare it as an act of terrorism, there's one particular event that makes it an act of terrorism. Otherwise, kidnapping is merely a crime. I but understand, make, yes. Make it an act of terrorism. Do you recall this YouTube video clip where they were saying, you know, uh, if you don't do this for your man, we're going to, yeah, he'll, he'll suffer a strange death and everything? Yeah. In that speech they did on YouTube, the kidnappers said to some, the words of this effect to our brothers in Islam, right? Any money we make from this 
will not go into our pockets, but will go towards future funding of our yeah, operations, our terrorist activities. That makes it an act of terrorism. Yeah. And that's on YouTube uh, and, and so on. Now, whenever I've made any contact, I had to go to the Attorney General's department. It's been sitting in you know, uh, the lap of uh, waiting for the Prime Minister to uh, declare it as an act. <coughs> I'm being ignored. And why am I being the more ignored? It's because there's no political points to be gained out of so what are you uh, doing about that? Do you have a um, like you have a book out, correct, of your story? And... Yes, that got released. There's also a, a song that got released, uh, "Situation Not Normal." That's uh, by a band. It's freely available again through my website. Well, look, I did contact the local federal member uh, last year, then again early this year. So he uh, he put it down to basically an administrative problem because nothing. My case wasn't moving from the Attorney General's department over to the Prime Minister's office. But we got a response from someone from the Prime Minister's department saying, oh, uh, within the next few months, the Prime Minister is going to you know, consider you know, more acts of terrorism. He's the quirk. You know? You're staying on top of it. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I decided that uh, what I do, I'll run this out. You know? and because when I came, before I left, the Philippines, I checked with the federal police and I said, how long do you think my involvement will be with this case? Because I've been back over doing witness stuff and all that. And he basically said, oh, look, and yeah, they've been around the block. And I said, oh, look, mate, it's three years. Right? So what I'd aim for, at the end of this year, it's three, oh, three years now since I released, but hopefully I'd like to get everything. And how are you doing? How are you now? You got your health back? It's getting a lot better, right? But also, too, it's we're heading towards at the end of this year. It'll be I'm, I'm aiming at the end of this year, right? Then in this year, um, I've had to mark time over the last three years. End of this year, the three-year period. But of course, remember too, uh, through rehabilitation, it'll be the five-year period. That's the end of my last five-year plan. I'm also five years older now, so I've got to reassess things. You know, I went from being do you yeah. plan on going back to the Philippines? Well, I do have to go back sometime, but that's uh, for official reasons. And I'll be under heavy... Uh, uh, there are some court cases, but they're in the process of being transferred up to the capital city because otherwise there's a likelihood of the uh, the courthouse being bombed or attacked. Right. And did they use the names that you gave them? Yes, that's about all I can say. Yes, right. okay, that's uh, fine. That's fine, I yes. understand. I, I sort of took an objective view and I thought to myself, if this was someone else, how would I advise that person? It's a good way mm -hmm. to look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, then I thought, thought to myself, get up and do something. Right? And because I was limited because I could barely walk, you know, uh, and my hand had been operated on as well. So I had really had little strength. Uh, in a, my eyesight had diminished everything. I thought, what am I going to do? I thought, one thing I have to do is I have to start reconnecting. Right? And I couldn't do that in a physical sense. So I thought, I have to get back on and I develop my online life again. More time went by, and a number of months later, I started doing some interviews uh, and so on. But then uh, I thought, I'll go one step further. Here is my opportunity to develop my creative skills. 
Good uh, for you. I got more involved with, uh, you know, uh, sort of photography, uh, digital artwork, the songwriting, uh, this sort of stuff. And, of course, too, process of getting, uh, uh, applying for some compensation from the federal government. I contacted this guy and said, look, can uh, I've given them stories and written stuff before in a past room. And I said, hey, um, can you run a story for me? Uh, and just say that I, and the title was, you know, kidnapped victim fears he won't get compensated. And I explained it to him. So he ran the story, and it was in the the papers, uh, especially online, uh, Australia, the UK. You know? So, and I said to him, all I need is to create a paper trail. Eventually, I'll be, you know, uh, when, if I can get any, rally any support, uh, and if someone starts saying hey to the government, you know, how come you're not doing anything? So I say, we didn't know. And you go, hey, but it was in the paper. <laughs> and here, look at this. Mm. Uh, and the same too with the song. When I wrote that, you know, I would wake up and uh, just the start of the song is uh, shot through the hand or something. I would have these thoughts when I'd first wake up, you know, this invitement. Of course you would, yes. I thought to myself, this is brilliant stuff. Mm. I think things change. So I've, uh, you know, as part of the uh, post-traumatic stress growth. You got your faculties back. Yeah, I thought, this is brilliant stuff I'm coming out with. I said, I should make notes of this. Oh, good for you. (laughs) And, yeah, I'd already, because of my academic background and experience, I I don't have a problem wrapping my head around it and knocking it into shape. So, yeah, things take time, as always. Yeah, but the thing is, in my case, you know, all all I could really do when things seems very desperate is just sort of, you know, all you got to do is try to, slow things down yeah you've certainly given us a lot to think about you certainly have expressed what hope is in Mm. in your way of thinking and i appreciate that and just the whole story just kind of like it's it's so difficult to relate to warren and you know it's a story that needs to be shared and i appreciate you you sharing your story, and I'm sure that there will be lots of questions and people will want to connect with you, etc. I'll put all those opportunities, connections, your book, your music on the show notes on your page, and so they will be able to do that and we'll be able to contact you. Sure. And the absolute last thing I'll say is at times, even now, you know, I, I still have moments on my own. I think myself, you know, if there was something I was out doing, I, all of a sudden a memory comes back of something I've already done. I think I'm so lucky, you know, that, you know, with, with my life. That's it, a wonderful full, attitude. It, yeah, it's full of memories. Yeah, That's it's not, right. You know, I don't have to have dreams because I have so many memories. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again. Warren. Okay. And thank you, Carol. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.